Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Yeah, please join me in welcoming Cyrus Dunham. Um, I was kind of surprised by how nervous I was for this reading. Um, I think it's probably because it is a room full of people who matter immensely to me. Um, there's some of my oldest friends in the world are in here and new friends and people I write with and people I go out with and friends from political and movement community um, and friends from all of the above. And there's, I think, a different kind of deeper pressure um, to read in front of so many people who, who matter so much to me. So I'm really grateful you're all here. I also just want to say it's like crowded. I will take no offense if you need to get up, leave, sit down, come and go, go to the bathroom, do whatever you need to do. Obviously, it's also like an intense day in LA. There's the fires, and I'm very grateful that you all came despite the, the traffic and, and all the different stuff that we're dealing with in our special state. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I wanted to make a few remarks before I read um, because I think that for me, this book was so much more about the process of writing it than it is about the final product. Um, and in a lot of ways, I really see the book as evidence of a process or a blueprint of a process more than the entirety of that process in and of itself. And so it seemed only right that since I finished <coughs> writing this book a year ago, I would say a little bit, because of course so much has changed since then. Um, and then I'll read from the book a little bit and then hopefully get to answer some questions. Um, something that I wanted to say was that in the vein of this book being documentation of a process, I think it feels very um, significant to read from it in a room full of all these people because the process that this book is evidence of is one that was pushed forward and catalyzed by so many people in this room because at its core I wanted to write a book about what it looks like to try to know oneself under these conditions. Um, and that's not something that can be done alone. And that, for me, has always been something that I do with others. So it may seem to be a book that was written by me and the sort of requirements of publishing <laughs> mean that there has to be a, a name on the cover, which was the best name I could come up with for myself at the time. <laughs> um, but it's much more than that, and, and it wouldn't exist without so many people who are here. Um, something that I have been thinking a lot about is why did I want to write a book of this kind? Why did I want to write a memoir? Um, and I think that as someone who is thinking a lot about systems, systems of power, systems of violence, systems of inclusion and exclusion, it always seemed to me that in order to understand the world, I had to start by trying to do the work of understanding myself understanding how I exist in relation to the people closest to me, to the communities that I'm a part of. So there was a lot of questions that were underneath the process of writing this book. Questions like, 
what am I afraid of? Um, what do I hope for? What do I judge? What do I want? What do I love? What am I loyal to? What do I believe in? Um, how are my desires and my beliefs at odds? How do my fears keep me from reaching towards the things that I hope for? Did I consent to the things that I want or were they what I was taught to want? Many, many questions that I don't have answers to. Um, I'm gonna drink some water. <laughs> And I think at the center of all those questions is what does it mean to live inside of and live with contradiction? Um, and I think we're so often taught to see our contradictions as, as flaws. And I want to think about contradiction as a point of connection, a place in which we can meet and love and get to know the people that are closest to us and other beings that we share this earth with. Um, I don't have answers to any of the questions that I just posed, um, but I did want this book to, I guess, function as some kind of offering, maybe an offering of those questions, if not um, an answer to any of them. I've never been very interested in writing about answers, <laughs> um, but I do need to write in order to live inside of and exist inside of questioning. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to say is that, you know, when I started writing this book, I still had a different name. I still used the name Grace. And of course, that's not a different person than the person I am now, but I think, I imagine there's many people in this room who know what it's like to go through the process of changing your name, making certain cho cho choices to shift your identity, um, and to exist in some kind of approximation of alignment. And I struggle a lot with the feeling that Grace, the person who decided to begin this process, is a different person than the person I am now. And in some ways, I'm still living inside of constraints or dealing with certain decisions that she made that I don't always identify with. Um, and that's a very kind of disconcerting and eerie feeling. But I think it's really important for me, as much as I have this desire sometimes that's rooted in shame or, or you know, a desire to push away moments that I suffered, um, to push away the person who made the, the choice to enter into this process. I do really wanna try to hold on to the ways that it's also a coherent story um, and that I can be both connected to and separate from that version of myself at the same time. And I think what is beautiful about being in a room with so many people that I love at so many, have loved at so many points in my life is that it's evidence of that coherence um, that I can hold on to at the same time that I struggle with this feeling of looking at this book and being like, who's the person who decided to do this and why am I standing here finishing what she started? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, so um, all that's to say, um, it's very meaningful to be here. And I will read, I'll kind of skip around um, some passages that I chose and then hopefully we can have a conversation because that seems a lot more pleasant than continuing to stand up here <laughs> talking to all of you. <laughs> mm. um, so yeah, this is from about two-thirds of the way through the book. If you've read the book, you know that not really much happens, but also some stuff happens. <laughs> um, but L.A. was a big character for me in the book because that's where I live, and that, for whatever reason, is the place where I was able to 
put a lot of things in motion that I couldn't beforehand. And I love living in this city and I'm so grateful to it. And so there's a lot of LA in the passages that I chose to read. When I returned to Los Angeles, the chemicals of my new antidepressant had leveled out. I still wasn't able to do much. I did walk every day to a flat ridge at the top of a steep dirt path up the road from my house. We call it the thinking spot. If it hasn't rained for a long time, the ridge is just tan dust littered with beer cans, shards of glass, and other dispossessed items as wide ranging as a car hood, children's bicycles, or moldy for sale signs. But when it rains, even for a day, grass sprouts up overnight, green blades pricking through mud. There's a rope swing too, hanging from the low spindly branch of a black walnut tree that looks like a tarantula. At the thinking spot, I developed a hobby. At the thinking spot, I developed a habit, a hobby even, even of collecting and making piles of trash. I organized the shards of glass into colors. When the piles got big enough, I brought up a garbage bag and filled it up, then slid down the path with what I'd collected and emptied it into nearby waste and recycling bins. The trash collecting calmed me. I liked being around anonymous refuse. I liked cleaning up chaos. Also at the thinking spot, looking up at the black walnut tree branches quivering against the sky, I began the practice of trying to fill up every single pocket of my body with air in order to feel myself from the inside out, into my toes, into the arches of my feet, into my shins, into my bladder, into my anus, into my hip bones, into my colon, into my ribs, my armpits, and even my breasts. The more of myself I felt, the more that grace just drifted away. As if I'd closed my eyes for a long time, and when I opened them, she was far out at sea, on the other side of a swell, a white spot appearing and reappearing in the water. There was no bringing her back, even if I wanted to. I wanted to be nameless, nothing, the opposite of known, and yet, I had no idea how. To aspire to be known was the only way I'd ever been taught to be alive. The less I wanted a name, the more compulsively I named everything I saw. Tree, glass, car, hill, gun, chicken, knife, shit, cunt, acorn, caterpillar, restaurant. I lay in the grass at the thinking spot and imagined myself as every other thing in the universe I could ever name, so diffuse and infinite as to be indiscernible, as to be unnameable. It's extremely hard for me not to chug this entire bottle of water right now, as everyone who knows me knows. <laughs> As painful as it was to be inside myself, I had an uncanny conviction that I needed to feel all the contours of this being. 
I couldn't float away. I told a friend that I was scared not to take a sip of something when my heart started pounding in my chest. <clears throat> they told me that every time I wanted to dissociate, I should look for the color red and let it fill me up. As it turned out, red was always there. Lines of red, neon light on the highways, drawn out into the valleys, red bougainvillea petals on Future Street, on Isabel Street, on all the tight alleys in the neighborhood, piles of dry red bougainvillea dust in the gutters, whipped up by the wind, the red frame around the picture of me above my bed, my red denim jacket, red antennae lights on the ridge of the San Gabriel Mountains, red cars, red roofs, red signs, the glow around the sunset on particularly foggy days, exit signs, the blood under my fingernails when I pick the scabs on my head, red reflections on the water, red on the horizon all the time. <clears throat> I got through my bouts of debilitating anxiety by running up and down the stone staircase near my house until I was so out of breath I couldn't walk. If it was late in the afternoon, the sun was a little lower and a little pinker each time I got to the top of the staircase. There was always some change to track at the bottom of my descent. A brown caterpillar getting closer to the grape soda can wedged in the dirt on the other side of the railing, a spider hanging off a dead agave plant. It calmed me down to calibrate my body to the movement, however big or small, of non-human things. The earth was rotating, the caterpillar was inching, and I, a thing, ran, panted, and paused. When I finished the cycle, up five flights and down five flights five times, I walked slowly back home, almost finally without thoughts. It was still warm enough to sit outside on the balcony at night. I wore shorts, no shirt, put my legs up on the railing. If I didn't look down, I could summon the sensation of flatness where my chest was. If I couldn't ignore my breasts, I pushed the extra flesh towards the center, to the sides, down over my ribs. I pretended it was butter, that I was spreading it thin. In the evening, music drifted up the hillside from backyard parties at people's houses. I slept with the door to my room open so I could hear the music, dogs barking, horns from the train tracks by the river. It calmed me down to feel like earth was one big room. If I could hear everything in the room all at once, then I existed as simply a part of it and I was okay. I wanted every particle to be its own center such that I felt held in the world no matter where I was. The objects of my desire started to seem smaller and less grandiose than ever before. I fantasized about walking down the hill in my neighborhood in a t-shirt with a flat chest and nothing binding my breasts, the wind pressing the fabric against my skin. I fantasized about pulling my shirt off from the collar instead of from the bottom seam like men in movies did. I fantasized about sleeping on my stomach without my breasts between me and the mattress. I fantasized about driving down the mountain in a convertible, top down, leaning back in the driver's seat, open to the world instead of hunched over, like the teenage boys in tank tops who lived by the lake when I was a kid. In the fantasies, I was euphoric but calm, not lonely, even though I was alone. I saw him in glimpses. When I walked by a mirror 
and caught sight of shoulders that were broader than hips, a face with a square jaw and thick eyebrows. When I saw my hand on the steering wheel of my car, veins swelling as I turned. When I squatted to lift heavy things and bounced back up with ease. In quotidian moments, I saw him, someone I admired, even lusted after. But these moments of alignment made the misalignment that much more unbearable. Should I keep reading? <laughs> okay. um, I want to make sure we have time for questions. We're just looking for one passage. A few weeks before surgery, I asked a writer I admired how they know when a book is finished. They responded with a question, when did you believe your name was Cyrus? The answer was never, or sometimes, or not yet, fully. Conviction comes in bursts, as does fraudulence. Sometimes I say Cyrus out loud, and there's an electric click inside me, that click of alignment. The name Cyrus doesn't knock me out of my body. But Cyrus is also tentative, a liberating gesture that I always fear, fear will be taken from me when I'm yanked back by, to reality by the truth, which is that I'm a girl and a daughter and a sister, and to claim anything else is to tell a lie, that I'm consigned to being a liar forever. Who would ever believe me? The week before my surgery, a friend sent me an email with no subject line quoting a Bible passage on the Tower of Babel, with which Earth's people built after traveling east to escape a great deluge. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole Earth. The people wish to be known by God, to reach up to the heavens and become stars. God did not approve of this hunger for ascendance, for recognition. And so he destroyed the tower, scrambled its inhabitants across the world. Prior to this, all of Earth's people spoke a single common language. From then on, they spoke mutually unintelligible languages. This dispersal was called the confusion of tongues. God's destruction of the tower implies that the will to make a name for oneself is full of ego deserving of punishment. And some people still believe this, that the will to rename oneself is naive at best, grandiose at worst, that naming oneself is akin to playing God. But what is the alternative? To let other people play God? To accept the constraints of a given name as if acceptance is always humble? If I am a tower, then I name myself with the knowledge that I will be dispersed not that I will cohere. Any name can be destroyed, can destroy itself. My value is not in my permanence, but in the resilience with which I recover and re-recover and reform after the deluge. I know myself only insofar 
as I know that I will always surprise myself, that I will collapse and be scrambled whenever I think my own structure is sound. I know myself only in so far as I know I am not singular, that what I am in this moment is born out of everyone I have known, that when the deluge comes, I will be washed away, nameless. Cyrus is a sign and he may not last, and still I choose to be him now. I choose to move towards something like manhood, a mercurial concept in which my belief flickers because for reasons I still do not know, it makes me feel closer to earth, to everyone and everything else in the flood. do questions now <laughs> unless we're done here you know? <laughs> hi Brooks the number that comes up a lot in the book is the number eight which was my the number that I had to do everything in repetitions of as part of my obsessive compulsive disorder. <laughs> um, so that's like a big thematic number for me or at a lot of times in my, throughout my life when I had like compulsions, whether it was about like doing things again and again or repeating fantasies, um, it, I had to do things in that number. And it also is the same number that my sister also had a really intense attachment to that number. So that I didn't real, always know about. So it's a kind of interesting link that we have. <laughs> um, I'm curious if you can talk about the actual the role that the writing of the book had in the year of beginning a medication system and changing your name. Whether you think those things were even possible or how they would have played out differently without the book. Because there's probably a lot of people writing who are attempting yeah. to cure it or just what it what it actually It's, it sounds kind of trite, but I always have this feeling when I look at this object where I'm like, did I write this book or did this book write me? <laughs> I can't figure out where the, in which direction the influence and the power was going. Um, and I think like the most precious part of this writing process was how much I learned about the space that writing can open up for me. Um, I think when I started working on it, I was avoiding a lot inside myself through really extreme external devotion, devotion to a single lover or partner or the needs of others. And it's always been hard for me to redirect that towards myself. And what was really interesting about having a ritualized writing process was the way that it became a proxy for devoting a lot of energy towards myself that I hadn't been able to before. Because I could get into this mindset of like, I can't because I have to write for the book. But the book was me. Um, and I also think that at first I was really tight and clamped up because I had a lot of fear. And I think we all have a lot of fear when we write and produce and create things because of all the things we're told about failure and what it means to make things that are bad and why it's scary to make things that are bad. And that keeps a lot of people from having an actual like contemplative, somatic relationship to just 
pushing out all of the shit that we have stored in us. So at first I was really tight and I couldn't just like release. Um, and I think the gift of working on something for a long time in this way was that by the end it was almost like I just knew that I had to just write. And at the end I would, it felt like I was like digging things up that I didn't even know were there. Um, and the more that I could just let myself follow like the, what appeared to be the most arbitrary instincts about what mattered to me, the more that my unconscious led me towards things that my controlling conscious self had prevented me from getting to. Um, so I think I now have a really different relationship to writing as like part of how I care for myself. And then in caring for myself, it, it's also part of how I exist in relation to other people and, and, and communities. Um, so it, I guess, yeah, it's funny to like look at this book and hold it and for it to like exist as a commodity, which most things ultimately become in the world that we live in. <laughs> um, because it was like so much more about this redistribution of, of like energy and devotion in, in my life. Um, I think after I finished working on this, I was like very allergic to the first person for a long time because there's something like really tyrannical about writing in, in the first person. And I think that as much as I'm grateful for working on this book, no matter how much one like tries to resist the genre constraints of memoir, I think it's hard for it still not to like impose a certain logic on, on life as it's unfolding because it like, I feel like I was constantly coming up against this urge in myself to turn it into a story. And I think ultimately I did turn it into a story because I didn't know what else to do. But I was like looking through my own life for that, the ending, for like the resolution. And that's something that's built into like the genre of memoir or, or autobiography, or whatever you want to call it. So I think I really needed space from that. Um, I think also just because there's so many ways to write and this is like a very particular and seemingly more like self-focused solitary writing exercise, but so much of the writing that's like most profound and meaningful is I think writing that happens like collaboratively or in coalition or writing that we do that's not about having our name attached to it, but about like reaching new types of understanding or pushing, you know, towards certain agendas or, or wishes for how things might be. So I definitely, I think right now I can't really like, it doesn't feel very good for me to think about imposing the tyrannical book form <laughs> on my life. Um, 
but and also I think it's a really like specific and risky choice to write about your life and implicate your loved ones in it and as much as we can like strive towards something that looks like consent I don't know if it's actually possible when we write about the people that we are close to and it's something that like I've been hurt by and I think as much as I tried to write this in a way that would bring my loved ones into the process of like in just small ways um, like influencing how they would be represented I still think that as much as I tried to protect people I failed and I think that's like an important lesson um, and something that I had to kind of accept that no matter how hard I tried there would be ways that it like hurt but it's not a, a, a process or a project that I think I would like take on lightly again Um, yeah, that's something I thought about a lot, and I think because of that, I there were, I wrote a lot of different endings. There's like three different endings in the book, and at every point, I thought that it was over. Um, and at, initially, the book ended around right after I got the, a double mastectomy, so it ended with this like this medical transition procedure, um, and I felt a lot of concern about what that meant. Um, and the ways in which even if I tried to like uh, analyze that it would still inadvertently further this idea that like going through a medicalization process is like necessary for legitimizing transness when in fact it is in and people can reject and live outside of their assigned gender whether or not they choose to ever interface with with the medical with the medical system um, and I think something that I was also working through is like my own contradictory emotions around that the way in which like I do feel that getting a surgery and, and entering into a process of medicalization ex like allowed me to be in my body in ways that I really needed to in order to do the work that I want to do here but also that doesn't necessarily line up with my beliefs about the way that binary gender is imposed um, and exists as an ideology that shapes the way we all like understand ourselves so I made a choice to add a afterward just to like be in the mess a little bit more after um, the the part that ended with the medical procedure. Um, I don't know if I like succeeded in troubling that um, narrative, but it was definitely important to me. Um, and I think, you know, other people have said this like better than me. Um, but I, I think it's important to say also that like something that extremely pervasive structural transphobia does is like imply that, you know, a sense of that like mental stability and wellness and gratitude and functioning as a citizen <laughs> are the things that are required to to legitimize people's like rejection of their assigned gender and that's obviously or I don't believe that that's true, you know, that like people can do whatever they want with or without happy endings. And also 
our world doesn't allow for happy endings for most people um, for so many reasons having to do with the different way that like violence exists um, so yeah Um, I think that like barbarism, lots of things that, lots of things are barbaric for other people, for some people and liberatory for others. Like the entire history of gender confirmation surgeries is rooted in the forced, um, like surgeries that were forced upon like young intersex and, you know, gender nonconforming children primarily of color who were mainlined into binary gender categories. So the surgeries that we have access to don't exist without histories of extreme violence. And then within that, they're also liberating gestures for countless people. And that contradiction and that tension, I think, is present in like so many ways that we practice self-determination in our world. Hi. I think it affected it deeply, but then there was also this question when I was going back into the text where I was like, where did my wish to push against that trope actually make me lie about what my own desires are? Um, because a lot of my desires for how I want to be in my body don't match up with my beliefs or my ideas or like these educated guesses that I have about how the world works. Like I believe certain things about gender and then I also lavish in moving through the world as a man. So I don't know what to do with that. That's where I am. <laughs> um, and so I think like, I'm sure I'll read this book in 10 years and see all of the ways that I lied to myself, that I've screwed my own desires, that my like hyper intellectualization of systems functioned as like a sort of screen. But I think like the only thing I could do is try to make my best attempt in the different like editing journeys to try to look at the parts where I felt like I was like defending myself or not really going into my own desire or something. Um, and I think like I so deeply value as a reader and a student being led into people's contradictory processes and being led into the ways that like people's deep wishes for how they look and who they have sex with and how they love and the ways they feel safe don't match up with the, the ways that they might like analyze the world around them. Um, so I think, to answer your question, I think I probably did do the trope a lot because the trope is also part of how I experience myself. Hi. <laughs>
yeah. Yeah, I probably wrote like five or six times as um, much over the course of the, the writing as ended up in the book. But a lot of it was like very redundant and to really sift through all of it would have been truly unpleasant and harrowing for all of you. <laughs> so, <laughs> because I was using writing as like a therapeutic process and I think that's really important, but that's maybe not what I need to share with everyone though. If you're interested, I'm, I'm glad to <laughs> send it along. <laughs> um, but I was really lucky to have like a extremely supportive, loving editor, which I think is really unusual and not something that I'd had before. And when we started, I was really, like I had so much imposter complex stuff. I don't, do people still even use that, that idea anymore? Um, <laughs> I had so, so much imposter complex. And I was like, oh, she's gonna find out that I'm like a fake, a cheat, that I'm not a good writer. She's gonna think I'm stupid. So I would be really controlling about what I sent her. And then at a certain point she was just like, dude, like I'm your editor. Like just send me everything, which was, really hard like I had that's not an easy thing to accept in the same way that a lot of times even with our closest friends we're like trying to manage what parts of ourselves we let them see um and she it was kind of just really beautiful to have someone be like give me yourself unedited like give me the whole give me the whole mess um so I'm really grateful for that um and it gave me new ideas about like how I want to be in dialogue with people and how I want to edit friends and and people who I collaborate with um, which is to say to not edit them until extremely, extremely, extremely far along when like so much emotional work has been done. Um, but yeah, there were so many versions of the book. Um, and one thing that I thought was interesting is like, you know, I'd never written a book before. Um, so I didn't really know what it was like, what it would feel like. But I think I always imagined that when you wrote a book, you like started here and then you like wrote your way over here like if you were going on like an extremely long like walking pilgrimage. <laughs> um, but it was more like the way that like a pearl gets made, like it made a shape and then layers were added and then layers were added and layers were added. Um, it kind of grew outward rather than growing forward. And a lot of that was also like having the body of the book and then having friends read it and having my editor Jean read it and be like, here's a moment where I don't feel like you're going there. Like here's a moment where we're not, because I think to write a book like this, I was like, it's only, I should only write a book like this if I'm really gonna like, there's gonna be something at stake for me when I write um, that that can that readers can connect with. Um, so there was a lot of Gene being like, I don't feel like, I feel like you're still hiding from something. And then I would just like make a day for myself where I was like, this, this thing I have a lot of shame about, this thing I really don't wanna write about, this thing I truly don't wanna write about. I'm just gonna like make myself sit there and write about it all day. And then those things that I really didn't wanna do would get kind of plugged back into the structure of the book. I find it really helpful to write about exactly what you wanna write about least. That's like really. <laughs> Hi. Listicle. <laughs> yeah. 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 I didn't have a lot of lists in it at 
first because I think my listing, which is like a real crutch for me and a real um, like uh, tick, is something I'm kind of embarrassed about. I've always been like an extreme lister. I would keep lists of like, you know, like choose the most popular boy in eighth grade and list every haircut he's ever had again and again and again and again and again. You know, or like list every pair of pants he has in order eight times. <laughs> Um, and I think a lot of us do like extremely weird shit like that as like coping. I have so many things that I do, um, but I never thought of those as part of my like creative practice because they're, I always was like, those are like the, the secret topographies of my mind that I hope and pray people will never know about. Um, so I didn't really include the lists at first. But then I would refer to the list sometimes in writing and Jean would be like, well, what's the list? You know? And then something like, I, I tried experimenting with just actually writing them down. Like what would it look like to write on the page? Like the, all the writing that I'm already doing that I never let anyone see. Um, and I ended up feeling like maybe if I was really embarrassed about it, it was a good thing to share. Um, but I think like whether you write things down or not, everyone is writing constantly, just even in like managing anxiety and depression and paranoia. <laughs> That's like a form of augmentation, you know? And I think it's kind of cool to, to, to wonder what that like looks like if we capture it in language and then wonder what happens if we actually like share that with, with people. Just so that they can know us in a different way. Yeah, um, I mean, I think like one of the many, many things I've learned in working on this was how little control I have over not only what people will experience when they read it, but also who will connect with it. But I just don't get to decide that. And I guess you could try to decide that through like PR and personal <laughs> branding, which of course we all have to do in different ways, whether we're writers or not, because that's just like figuring out how that like is the ways that labor, you know, is will be extracted from us in many different forms. I don't think you can really like separate personal branding and labor or something. Um, but I think that I think I had to just like give up a lot of control and I'll go through different things. Like if I'm feeling bad about myself, I'll be like, only cis people are gonna like my book, I suck. You know, or I'll be like, only trans people are gonna like my book, like I'm loser, <laughs> you know, like, but it doesn't, like, I can't control it. And I think one thing that was really, really important to me was, like, I know that I believe, and, and from knowing and loving people who identify in many ways, I feel quite sure, if I'm sure of anything, I think this is one of the things I feel most sure of, which is that like binary gender harms everyone, rather, whether or not people identify as cis or trans. 
and that the feeling of failing to perform like an idealized gender category is like a deeply shared experience, whether or not people build an identity around it. And that exists for so many reasons, having to do with the way that like class and race and ability and so many other factors inherently prevent people from being the like idealized white man and woman that our world is built around. Um, so I just wanted to write something that people with a lot of different relationships to language and a lot of different relationships to theory and a lot of different relationships to identity would read and be like, oh yeah, like it, it does really hurt to try to be something that I can never be and fail. Um, and that for me was like more important, I think, than like how, yeah, how I theorized it or like in whatever direction I pushed the canon or something like that, you know. So, uh, in addition to being a writer, you're also an organizer and an activist, and I wonder how that part of you did or didn't factor so much into this particular book. Maybe how it came to you, but... First off, I just want to say that there's so many loved ones from CCWP here, so big shout out to, to CCWP. Um, um, which is like a deep, you know, home for me and, and something I'm so, so grateful for. Um, yeah, I feel shy talking about like different types of work, I guess, in public in this way. Cause like, I feel really comfortable making the choice to like e excavate and commodify my own shit. <laughs> um, but I don't, but it's very different when it comes to like other people's stories and fights and, and struggles. Um, and I think like, it's not that I don't think that writing is political, but I just think it's really different. And like the work that one does to, I don't know, in whatever small way, like push against the extreme forms of violence that structure everything. Like that's really material and that's really felt and that's really interpersonal. Um, and it's so different from writing in this way. And maybe sometimes they like inform each other. But I think the most important thing, like I, d I really didn't want to write about like other types of work in this book, because that's just not what this book was about. And like the um, connections like live in me and in my relationships. And I think maybe it didn't, they didn't need to be something that I wrote about this time around. Do we have any more time or? Definitely, one fully. I don't know what I believe about that yet. Um, I don't feel able to like access uh, a lot of like total conviction with something like this. And I also think like everything we do, especially if one makes the choice to like make something in public 
and let it enter into like a marketplace in this way has political implications that we're not in control of. And no matter how hard I try to like address the very obvious things that are at play in this, which is like not only that I'm a trans person, but that I'm white, that I grew up with class privilege, that I'm from a family that already has a lot of proximity to, to fame and recognition, as much as I tried to address that in the book in the most honest ways that I could, there are still like things that are happening outside of my control. Um, and I think that's like really scary. Um, and a lot of times it makes me like want to do nothing at all. Um, but I don't know like how any one person can fully know all the implications of like everything that they do. And I think like I just have to make the best guess sometimes. Um, but I think like, you know, even when people make their best guesses, we look back decades later and we see who was hurt by those best guesses. Um, and I think that's like really scary, but is also like part of taking risks maybe. Um, and part of taking risks that are much more important than writing, but like part of taking like political risks also is that we don't know who will be hurt by the th what we're fighting for. We good? <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.